calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello again, everybody. It's Ron Remkus here, and today uh, it's my distinct pleasure uh, to sit down with Russell Napier of Orlock Advisors. Russell, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, I've got a number of questions I'd like to run through with you, but uh, uh, I figured I'd start by just uh, tell us a little bit about your background and the sort of philosophical approach you take to the markets. Okay, so I'd say there are two bits to that which may be different. Number one, I start with money and credit and work back into the real economy which is kind of a matrix view of how the real economy works. I think it drops out the end of money and credit. But number two, I use a lot of financial history uh, to look back at times like this before. Have we seen something like this before and what does it mean? Uh, and that's particularly crucial today because what we see across the planet is more politics, more sociology, more of these things coming into play in the determination of prices than we've seen in recent times. But clearly, as a financial historian, that's perfectly normal to see these things. So it's uh, those two things, and it's that approach. It's an asset allocation approach, uh, but using money, credit, and financial history. Okay. And is there a particular area of concentration, whether it's by industry or asset class or anything like that? Nope. It's global, global. asset class. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, you recently wrote in an article um, that... Um, growth in world debt continues to outstrip the growth in broad money supply and uh, and nominal GDP as well. Um, therefore, your belief is that uh, the world is closer to some sort of debt deflation cycle. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Monetary policy, I mean, if you look at the headlines, you'd believe that monetary policy was determined entirely by the price of money. One of the greatest lessons of financial history is actually it's the quantity of money. And obviously that great lesson was taught to us by Milton Friedman and Anna Swartz in the monetary history of the United States of America. Uh, one particular incident, which was the Great Depression. Remember that on Mr. Milton Friedman's 90th birthday here at Chicago, we're in the University of Chicago, here in the University yeah. of Chicago, Ben Bernanke stood up and said, Milton, you were right. It was our fault and we'll never <laughs> let it happen again. Right. And what did he refer to? The Fed's... Focus on the price of money, missing the quantity of money. As we sit here today, the total number of dollars in the world is growing at 5.5%, right at the low end of its historical range. It is almost the lowest level we've seen since the end of the GFC. In China, broad money growth is the lowest we've ever seen. And in India, three months ago, it was the lowest we'd ever seen. So here we are, eight years into extreme monetary policy, and global money supply growth is incredibly low. Global debt growth is incredibly high. So what's happening? Well, the whole plan of monetary policy was to get nominal GDP growth growing much more quickly, i.e. inflation, but obviously real economic activity, and bring down those very high debt levels, which threatened in 2007 to nine to change a recession into a depression. And it hasn't worked. It's failed. Because actually we find ourselves at record high debt-to-GDP ratio with evidence over the last year and a half that the growth of broad money itself is falling. So the pledge made to Milton and Anna that we'll never let it happen again, I think they're failing. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, and in essence, what you're saying is that uh, we had a, a problem of too much debt in uh, 2008 timeframe, and we've 
decided to solve that by adding more debt. And yet, lo and behold, it hasn't worked. So do you think that uh, policymakers are um, ignoring the lessons of history, or do you think that maybe they're pursuing an agenda that um, they're unaware is in conflict with some of the things that you're talking about? They're doing the one thing they can do, which the central bankers are doing. There is a solution to this problem, but it's a government solution, and it's the governments that are paralyzed at the minute because after any great financial crisis, you get a major shift and that there will be a period where no, no party has particular power, nobody has particular influence, and then there will be a breakthrough and a major change. So the creation of inflation and more money is really very easy to achieve. Forgive student debt. If you forgive student debt or move student debt from the balance sheet of the students to the state, then those students are free up to borrow money. They'll borrow money primarily from the banking system. That will create growth in money. Money growth will go up. Inflation will go up. But that is nothing that can be achieved by central bankers. And that's the main conundrum for central bankers. They do not create money. They use the commercial banking system and they steer the commercial banking system to create money. And the problems the commercial banking system is having across the world in creating money are partially related to the legislation, but they're more related to the lack of demand for bank credit. The solving that problem is to the government and not to central bankers. So I don't criticize central bankers particularly because we've given them an impossible job. And if you give someone an impossible job, we shouldn't be too uh, critical of them when they fail. Of their output, right. Um, you also talk about uh, specific countries, China, Mexico, Turkey, and basically say that they're up against, their backs are up against the wall. So they're either going to uh, encounter substantially slower growth or face devaluation. Can you sort of highlight, I realize the different markets and whatnot, but can you sort of highlight sort of the, the major themes uh, for each of those countries? Sure. Now, the reason for picking those three out is that emerging markets are different from other markets because they borrow in somebody else's currency. That fundamentally changes the risk profile and fundamentally changes what you can do with monetary policy. Right. If you permit a significant devaluation of your exchange rate when you've borrowed in a foreign currency, you raise the prospect that many of your domestic institutions and ultimately your banking system would go bankrupt, which is exactly what we saw post uh, the Asian crisis. So you're really tied to the exchange rate. You really have to pay some attention to the level of the exchange rate. So what we'd hope to see is all three economies going through, since the taper tantrum, major slowdowns, major improvement in their external accounts, perhaps movements into current account surpluses. And only when you're in that current account surplus can you then begin to reduce your very high level of foreign currency debt. And none of them have made that transition. It's quite stunning that we've got improvements in the current account for Mexico, we've got improvements in the current account for Turkey, but they're fairly minor. Uh, in China, there's no improvement at all. The current account situation continues to worsen from a large surplus to an ever smaller surplus. And on the capital accounts for all three countries, nothing particularly good happening. So to be confident that these economies are going into a new growth phase with a steady exchange rate, we'd want to see major improvements in their external accounts. It hasn't happened. And fundamentally, that hasn't happened because of America. We have a country in America that is not running significantly large current account deficits. We've got a surplus in Europe slash Germany. We've got a surplus in Japan. And we have these emerging markets desperate to grow via their trade accounts, but the developed world unable to produce uh, either lower surpluses or bigger deficits to permit that growth. So what would, for instance, China, what, what can they do about that? China will ultimately devalue its exchange rate. I mean, either they uh, de uh, deflate internally to become more competitive and therefore see their, their trade account improve, that would be because A, they sell more because domestic prices fall, or B, uh, 
uh, imports fall because the economy is slowing so rapidly. I think we all know that socially that would be very difficult in China. It's not a path that the Communist Party would wish to choose. Deflation of wages, not socially acceptable in most places. Uh, recession, not acceptable in China. So obviously it's a devaluation that has to come from China. Now the beauty that China has is its foreign currency debt to GDP ratio is really very low. Uh, and a movement on the exchange rate should not produce bankruptcy for a, you know, a large proportion of Chinese industry. That's not true for many emerging markets. But it's true for China. So what is quite alarming about China is the movement on the exchange rate to date has not done the job. It has not improved the current account. It is not making major inroads into improvement on the capital account. And therefore, it tells us that the major movement on the exchange rate is yet to come. Okay. So uh, the flip side, the flip side of the emerging market problem is the developed market problem. And central banks are having a difficult time reflating those economies. Uh, can you elaborate on the process or the mechanics or why exactly uh, some of the developed markets are having such difficulty? Yeah, I think there's a whole host of reasons, which I think most people watching this will know. And we'll put demography at the top of the list. So we have an, a very overgeared society uh, with an aging baby boom generation. Uh, this is a technical issue, but importantly, the people who have borrowed and probably have to borrow less, i.e. the older population, have borrowed primarily from the banking system. It is the size of the commercial bank balance sheets which ultimately determine the quantity of money in an economy. And they're having a huge problem in growing those balance sheets. And therefore, we're having huge problems in growing the total amount of money in the economy. And however you slice it up, if we don't have great growth in the economy, we're, or in money supply, we're unlikely to have great growth in nominal GDP. So, you know, as I said, I tend to work with money and credit and work backwards. But that relates directly to demography. The baby boom generation are entering their savings phase. It's fascinating that interest rates are incredibly low, and yet the savings rate today is 5.5%, and in 2006, it was 1.9%. So interest rates have come from 5.25 to 1.25, 400 basis point movement in interest rates, and the savings rate is going up. There's something going on in demography here, which is it doesn't stop you producing growth in the long run, but it's a headwind which the central bankers are really struggling with. And crucially, people haven't got and grasps the monetary aspect to that headwind, which is if demography forces the repayment of debt by the older generation, and therefore works as a cap on bank credit, then it really, really complicates uh, monetary policy. Cool. That's a fascinating point. Um, turning to the markets and investors, uh, you say that the period post the great financial crisis will come to be known as debtflation when investors mistook more leverage for more growth and in inflation. Um, and so what do you think is causing the investment community to get it so wrong? Well, that's uh, where to begin on that one. But obviously the investment community is forced to be very short-term. Uh, it always has been. It's getting worse, and the algorithms are part of that. So there's a lot of momentum. There's always been a lot of momentum in the, uh, in the stock markets and the investment community, but this is the biggest momentum of all because the community is very worried about its jobs, and therefore it's been very short-term. So it's going with the flow. That's the fundamental reason why this is wrong. Uh, there's always an agency problem. There's been an agency problem since the day we invented the agent. I don't know who the first agent was. It's probably Adam. <laughs> Adam was probably the first agent. Uh, but the agency problem gets worse when you throw algorithms into into the pot. So that's what that's what's happened, and that's why it's getting it's getting worse. I mean, speak to most fund managers about what they're doing with their own money. It's radically different from what they're doing with their clients' money. See, with their own money, they act as principals. With the client's money, they act as agents. We've right. always known this was here. Right. But in today's market, where jobs are leaving that industry, I think this problem becomes even greater. 
Wow, it's fascinating. Um, as you look uh, across the global landscape, uh, where do you see the greatest sources of risk today? Uh, which markets, which countries, which asset classes? Okay. So I am not worried about China per se, but I'm worried about its exchange rate. So the Chinese exchange rate is simply a transference of risk out into the global economy. And it's a transference of deflationary risk into the global economy. I lived through the last Chinese devaluation. Uh, it ultimately had a huge negative impact on emerging markets. And therefore, I think there is risk in emerging markets because it will follow from that Chinese exchange rate. Uh, I can give you a very long list, but I'm going to try and stick to just three. Right. Uh, the yen. Now, when a country runs out of savings, when its savings system is effectively full of government debt, uh, and the government insists on running fiscal deficits, that will be funded by its central bank. That's what is happening in Japan. It is not quantitative easing. It can't stop unless the government stops running deficits. When you find yourself in that trap, when you run out of savings, and that is not the case anywhere else in the developed world except Japan, your exchange rate should take a huge hit. So a very weak yen also has very negative impacts. Uh, that's a weak yen is a strong dollar. They're two parts of the same thing. Uh, it has very negative impacts on emerging markets. Uh, and finally, Turkey. Uh, the, these, are, these are very subjective things, but the Prime Minister of Turkey has told us over and over and over again that his country will not be enslaved to foreign debtors the same way as the Ottoman Republic was. And yet he's got one of the highest levels of foreign currency debt to GDP in the world. So I think we have to pay some attention to the words of, the, uh, of Mr. Erdogan. I think it's probably in the form of exchange controls, but exchange controls, when they come, is tantamount to a major emerging market default. And that will have knock-on effects on our perception of the risk of emerging markets across the world. The world's terrified of populism, yeah. but I'm not frightened of populism in any country with strong constitutions. But investors have to be very frightened of populism in countries without strong constitutions because there the rule of law can disappear. Ownership, your right to the ownership of assets can disappear. So if you're worried about populism, you've got to be worried about emerging markets, not developed markets. Right. Um, well, uh, that's all we have for today. Uh, Russell, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for joining us. Uh, please be sure to follow all of our content at cfainstitute.org and Enterprising Investor Blog. Thank you. Copyright 2017, CFA Institute, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.